You're listening to The Dealmaker's Edge with A.Y. Strauss, diving deep into stories behind commercial real estate leaders. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Dealmaker's Edge today. We're honored to be joined by the one and only John Usdan, who is the CEO of Midwood Investment and Development. Midwood was founded in 1925 as a residential brokerage and today is a vertically integrated investment, development, and management platform focused on best-in-class, mixed-use commercial and residential properties. John has spent the last 42 years helping Midwood amass a portfolio that includes over 130 properties across the U.S. and several million square feet in its development pipeline. And John, your leadership, I think, really reflects the mission statement of the company, which is to restore and revitalize the fabric of our urban centers and to improve the way people live, work, and play through industry-leading design, planning, and execution. What a wonderful mission statement. John, we really appreciate your time, and our listeners are very excited, as are we, to welcome you to the Dealmaker's Edge today. Thank you again. And I'm flattered to be invited. Fantastic. Well, we're off to a great start already. It can only go downhill from here. All kidding aside, one of the things we like to do so our listeners can really appreciate a full scope is obviously... The company's been around a long time and you've been in the business for, for quite a while. Maybe you can talk about your entry point into the business or perhaps some of the original story of Midwood before you got started. I would be happy to. So the firm was founded by my maternal grandfather in 1925, who was an immigrant from Russia, from a one thriving town called Tishnev that at the turn of the century became the fulcrum of pogroms in Russia that had been instigated by the Tsar. So at a very early age, tasted the bread of affliction and emigrated to this country with his family. And they left because his oldest brother, he unfortunately passed away in passion, was going to be conscripted by the Russian army to fight in the war with Japan. And much as the Russian strategy is today in Ukraine, they would take the less fortunate citizens, in those days it was Jews, and put them on the front line on Ukraine to draw enemy fire. And the mortality rate was almost 100%. So he came to this country in 1905, and in 1925, he was fortunate enough to get a job selling houses in Midwood, Brooklyn, and he sold three houses his first weekend and made $600, more money than he had made in the previous six months. So he figured it was a good business. By the time the depression rolled around, he had a very active brokerage and property management business and recognized that the disruption in the capital market presented an opportunity. So he and a couple of partners raised some money. And by the time the depression ended, they owned and or controlled 10,000 apartments. And in 1945, because my mother was an only child and a talented writer, he recognized that there was not going to be any succession to his firm. So he began selling his residential portfolio and spent the next 36 years of his life simplifying his life, simplifying his business, and giving his money away. And um, the first thing he did philanthropically was aid the children of the displaced people in 1945. So fast forward, by the time he passed away in 1981, I was 23 years old and I was the oldest grandchild. 
and I had gone to work for me from the time I was 10 and I got literally stuck with the business. And at that point we had a portfolio of three dozen net lease properties, a bookkeeper and a secretary, and that was it. And it was a challenge, but it was also great training because I had to be the property manager. I had to be the leasing guy. I had to be the accountant, the bookkeeper, you name it. And I learned how to perform every function in the business. And within six months after he passed away, I started buying buildings principally in Hell's Kitchen, some in Chelsea, some in Jersey City in 1981-1982, and really have never looked back. So that's sort of the history of the firm. That's a great overview. And from those early years, maybe we could talk about you know, maybe the first 10, 15 years, you were really, really young when you took over the leadership and you started buying properties at a very young age. But maybe you could talk about some of those first 10, 15 years, the challenges of really building an infrastructure to scale. Today, your organization is probably nothing like it was when you first started. But besides for buying the properties, you have to build the firm itself and sort of your vision for outlining the firm where you wanted to go, what type of properties you wanted to get into. Maybe you could talk about some of your thinking through those early years. So within first three years after my grandfather passed away, I had acquired 25 small residential and a few commercial properties. And he quickly realized that if I was going to continue in my rehab business, that it would take an organization. And I decided at the ripe old age of 28 that I just wasn't, I didn't have the skills and I wasn't ready to take on like the overhead and spend the time managing people. So I transitioned away from residential renovation and fortunately was able to form a couple of joint ventures, one in the shopping center business, acquiring strip shopping centers, primarily supermarket and drug anchored centers, and also building industrial flex and warehouse space in Connecticut and Long Island. And I did that until the early 90s. And by transitioning to those kinds of businesses, I realized that I didn't need a lot of people to manage larger property. And in those days, you could, you were successful at what you did. You could borrow most of the money required to transact and then get the balance of your money out when we were either finished repositioning a property or developing. But what I noticed in the early 90s was that the strip shopping centers and the industrial buildings were much more of a commodity. And when the recession of the early 90s came around, we were fortunate we didn't have much debt. But I realized that a lot of the smaller net lease properties that my grandfather had acquired in very solid neighborhoods were performing a lot better. And our rents were rising versus rent declining in the more commodity type property. So I pivoted my business again and started going back, reinvesting in these urban areas. And that really was transformational. And by then I was prepared to build a larger organization to manage some of these properties. And what I was really interested in doing was buying properties in the center of places that were often overlooked, but were rich in resource, such as transportation, educational and cultural institutions, and where there was a lot of optionality around what kind of use the properties accommodate because I felt that presented far less risk. So we started acquiring properties in 
in downtown Boston or in Soho or downtown Philadelphia or any number of other places and with an eye toward one day potentially redeveloping them. And that was sort of the foundation of a lot of what we're doing today, because those assemblages have now been redeveloped into residential rental buildings, condos, mixed-use projects. And we continue to try and acquire and assemble those types of properties, and we also develop them. So it's been a very interesting journey. Sure, it has been. One of the things we talked about offline is really that process of finding the deal, the skills you need to find the deal. Obviously, you grew up in watching your grandfather and you you were early to get into the real estate development business, but maybe you could talk about some of those processes you use to identify markets, how you view underwriting. I don't mean from a cap rate perspective or something that's going to be IRR or something hyper-technical, but from a very macro perspective, you mentioned sort of rich in assets other than the bricks themselves, but any other sort of quotients or processes you look to or think through or the skills you wish you could have developed maybe earlier on you know, for somebody up and coming in the business? So I was very fortunate because my mom, as I mentioned, was a writer and was very interested in progressive education. So a Kids, we were, my brother, sister, and I were very much encouraged to follow our intellectual curiosity. And too often, young people today are encouraged to do the opposite, to be very narrowly focused on a specific area. Uh, If they want to be successful at business, they should take finance and accounting. And what I learned, because I was an English major and a writer in college and had an interest in art history and economics and philosophy and all of these different disciplines is that if you have a broad perspective, the knowledge that you accumulate over time can be put to work to help identify patterns and have a deeper understanding of why certain neighborhoods will do better over time. Why are people migrating to one place versus another? How their outcomes are determined by their education, because our strategy has always been that of a long-term owner. Understanding that uh, the value of a piece of real estate is tied to its economic utility over a long period of time. And in order for property to continue to improve in value, the outcome of the people who live there or stop there or use it has to continue to improve over time. So identifying areas that are very rich in resources, if you're going to be a long-term owner, is critical to understanding both the macro uh, economics of real estate investment and development and the microeconomics of what drives rent. So it was this broad discipline in how I was taught to think that really played a very important role in how I thought about the investment of capital. Well said, and, and I appreciate that answer. I know a lot of people will learn from that as well. You've also talked a little bit about Leveraging technology, right? I mean, technology is sort of a buzzword for everything today. It keeps changing. It keeps evolving. At the end of the day, it's your core philosophy of improving these urban centers and sort of irreplaceable real estate, which is rich in other areas as well. But 
not to squeeze out any proprietary secrets from you. I would never do that, certainly on a public forum, but maybe just on a macro level, you could talk about how smart ownership, smart developers, people have given a lot of thought as leverage new technology. Maybe you could talk about how you've been thinking through that as an organization, because I know you spent a lot of time investing in that to make smarter decisions. There is so much, you know, there's a lot written about the amount of data that's being generated. And it was only until a few years ago that the amount of data that is now available is cumulatively greater than all of the data that was accumulated up until five years ago. I mean, it's data collection is just absolutely exploded. And what the great tech companies of today, whether it's Google or it's Amazon or it's Microsoft, Facebook, they're in the data collecting. So there's all sorts of interesting information that years ago was not widely available. I used to scour the census reports and the demographic information, which was uh, many years ago, just a blunt instrument to try and understand what was happening to incomes in an area and how I could potentially predict what would happen, why people with, who were better educated were moving to an area and people who were less educated were moving away from that area. And that's how we came to make investments in places like Boston and Detonia and any number of other places. And now there's all sorts of interesting data that you can capture. The cell phone companies like Verizon sell mobility data to third parties who then scrub it and then offer it for sale. So literally when you're walking around with your cell phone, Big Brother is tracking you and watching. So it's a kind of a scary thought, but it is being able to look at that data in real time and understand what is happening to a place. So we made a very significant investment about four years ago to develop our own data analytics capability. We have an in-house data scientist, and we've put together our own set of metrics for evaluating real estate that is not only about our, what we see, what we feel, what we hear when we go and visit a piece of real estate, but what the numbers are telling us so that we can make better informed decisions that are increasingly involving larger amounts of capital. And it's all about mitigating our risk. I know you're interested in certain markets besides for the major centers you've already invested in here. I believe in nine states or, or more at this point. You've mentioned to me different parts of the country are more bullish on maybe than others. Obviously, probably where you're active, but any particular markets you're extra excited about these days? You know, we continue to be very interested in places of innovation. So whether it's Philadelphia or New York, or Boston, or even Pittsburgh, or Los Angeles, those are the markets that we're principally active in. And we're looking at some other. So we also have a whole set of other metrics that we look at because one of the things that we understand that's a major risk mitigant is that if you can buy or build an asset of high quality that's differentiated, you can preserve pricing power over a long period of time. And that's critically important to experiencing positive rent growth. So finding places with high barriers to entry that aren't the most popular uh, is something that we're always on the list. The market that are very dynamic, whether it's Austin, Charlotte, uh, some of the other high growth markets, 
we have shied away from because we are very concerned about their potential. Sure. And I guess that's a good segue into more of a state of the market question, which you're probably tired of hearing or being asked, but you're so experienced, you can't, you sort of like have to be asked. I mean, if you read one piece of news today, it says the sky is falling and you read another piece of news, it says we're going to be fine. Obviously, people say it's a local game. And, and I think the news media hypes up the, the future of office and all the negative headlines there. As an investor for so many years across decades, across so many different markets, across so many different asset classes. Where do you think this stuff shakes out over the next 6, 12, 18 months? Do you think we're, uh, we're more gloom and doom or it's going to be one of these mixing of good and bad different environments together as things more subtly shake out? Well, I think the first and last rule of surviving a long period of time in the real estate business is being conservatively leveraged. If you're conservatively leveraged and you own the kind of real estate that you can lead, you'll be okay. I do think, though, everybody is talking a lot about office. And I do think that uh, there is a fundamental issue. And that issue isn't so much to do with the effects of COVID, which have lasted longer and are taking longer to wear on office occupancy, as much as the obsolescence that uh, office buildings are suffering. So if you analyze what has changed, if you're in a place where there are high-paying jobs and you want to lease your office space, the environment in which these buildings are located becomes critically more important than what it used to be because people who can go work at a number of different places want to work in a building where there is outdoor space, there are amenities, there are services, and those buildings, as a result, require state-of-the-art heating and ventilating system. They're requiring exponentially more power. And so if you have a building that has not been brought up today in a market where there's so much sublet dates and you have a commodity and your rents are compressed, given the exponential increase in construction cost, so to build out guest and class office space, it can cost you as much as $175 to $200, but your economics don't work. If you're in a $50 or $60 market, you have to be in a 90 or $100 market just to sustain that kind of capital being dust. So I do think that the Class B and C market in places like New York or San Francisco or Boston or any number of other major cities is going to be challenged for a very long period of time. And I don't really think that there's any basis that those buildings can be reset to where if rents remain at current level, that will justify the kind of investment that needs to be made. So if you own a building that can be repurposed over time, the value of that building and the market expectations will intersect. And you'll see some of those buildings get redeveloped. But I do think that there is a major structural challenge there, just like there's been a structural challenge owning a Class B or C mall, and we're seeing major redevelopments of those properties into mixed-use environments where there's a lot of housing that's being built or they're being turned into life science or logistic hubs or any number of kinds of other uses. Real estate, at the end of the day, uh, you have to own the kind of real estate that is adaptable and where you can justify reinvesting the economic reason for that property to exist 
will no longer exist and you'll be left with just your intrinsic land. Well stated. And I think a lot of owners are experiencing that today. Like you said, on the more obsolete office product that may need governmental intervention for different sort of approvals and special circumstances. The podcast is called The Dealmaker's Edge. And one of the questions we always like to ask our guests is to how they balance their mindset in connection with all of these challenges that are faced. You've been at the game for quite a while and your family has a long track record, but I'm sure there are days which are stressful like everyone else. And what are the types of things you tell yourself as you're sort of powering through, constantly pushing and striving to those next levels is maybe especially in those earlier days when you were taking those big risks, buying those properties in your 20s, it must have been very scary. So you clearly have a lot of staying power to say the least, but also a lot of tenacity and mental toughness. So maybe you can share some of those thoughts as well with our listeners. Well, the most valuable thing that my grandfather and mother taught me were certainly principles. And my grandfather, who had such a difficult child, he also led a very blessed life. Always said, remember, no matter what happens, happens to the best. So that was one thing that he taught the three of us. The other thing that he would say all the time is that you have to learn how to smooth out the highs and the lows. And one of the things that we always say at Midwood is that within every challenge lies an opportunity. And I think a lot of it has to do with your outlook, but you also have to be a realist and understand that your interests are not always aligned with the people that you're doing business with. And that at the end of the day, if you don't take care of yourself and you don't take care of your family, no one else will. So you have to have that kind of fortitude to see through a moment in time and understand that through hard work and focus and tenacity that things will work out. And I couldn't think of a better way to wrap the conversation. I think in this sort of uh, interesting environment, to say the least, those words of encouragement will really resonate with a lot of people, myself included. So um, with that, I guess we'll wrap. I, I really want to thank you again for your time. I know people will learn a lot and I'm really just appreciative of it. I think what you've done to date will continue for quite some time. And we're excited to watch the continued success of you personally, and obviously the story of Midwood. So with that, we'll wrap unless you want to add anything else. But again, I really want to thank you for being on, John. Thank you very much for the invitation. And it was truly a pleasure. Thank you for joining the Dealmaker's Edge. Don't forget to follow us on your favorite podcast platform. Give us a five-star rating so more people can follow the conversation.